Welcome to What's Next, the podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. Join your host, Tamira Lechner, as she explores the diverse pathways of entrepreneurial spirits who thrive while working and playing across multiple disciplines. Whether you're firmly established in your career, contemplating a change, or simply seeking inspiration, these conversations with fascinating people will ignite your curiosity and inform your own journey. Tune in to discover how mindset and action plus your own secret sauce can lead to extraordinary personal and professional growth, no matter where life takes you. Welcome to What's Next, a podcast that delves into the exhilarating world of nonlinear careers and the art of successful pivots. I'm Tamara Lechner, your host, and I am here once again with my guest, Eric Fraser. Eric, welcome back. Thank you, Tamara. It's wonderful when we have these longer pauses because then we have more catching up to do. So something I often do when I'm working with coaching clients and I I haven't done on our podcast yet is to kind of begin with an emotional check-in. So if you think back over starting this new year up until today, which we're recording on the 17th of January, what emotion has been most prevalent in your work life so far? Relief. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say a close second is excitement because it's, you know, a relatively new business that I've joined and there's lots of change and growth going on. So that's exciting. Um, but relief because I feel like I'm doing something right now that um, I would probably do for free if I if I could afford to just do stuff for free. Um I would probably do something very, very close to this, which is research AI, specifically look at the math of AI, which I just find really interesting, um, and then advise people on how to use this new technology in their lives in a practical and positive way. I think it's outstanding that you found something. I think people talk in an aspirational way about finding something that you would do for free and then figure out a way to get paid for doing it. And, and for many people, that's not an easy path. So it's super applaudable that you've gotten there. And relief and excitement would certainly summarize how one would hope you'd feel when you hit that yeah. point. Yeah, right, right, exactly. So if I go to the research and the math and then to the advising people, mm. What strengths would you draw from your past work that would connect? So I know you've talked before about this love of math, and um, I'm curious to know where your joy of research and your joy of advising people, where where have those come from in your career so far? Well, um, I started off not being very good at advising people, honestly. Um, So I had to learn that skill over many years listening to lots of good coaches and mentors. Um, But I have had to be pretty good at it for the last, say, five years. So can I ask you, if someone's listening and they're thinking, I don't even know if I'm good at that or bad at that, I've been giving advice, how would you have recognized in yourself that you didn't think you were good and that you learned? Well, the, the trick is that you don't know how bad you are when you're bad. So you just think, oh, I'm sure everyone just gives advice like this. And it's only when you've been trained and coached by the right mentors and the right coaches and they point out 
what you should improve and what it feels like to the client when you do it right versus not as well. That's when you realize, you know, you look back on what you were doing and say to yourself, I wasn't very good back then. So it's those, you know, classic four stages of competence. Like you start off with unconsciously incompetent and then you learn that, oh, wow, I'm not very good at this. So that's consciously incompetent. And then you're consciously competent. And then finally, you're just so good at it that you're just unconsciously competent. So um, I like that framework a lot. Yeah, I think I, I hope I'm somewhere between stage three and four. I imagine that you are. And so tell me, I also asked you about research. So before I go to yeah. my next advice question, where's yeah. this love of research from? That, um, first of all, it's not from academia. So I, of course, you know, I went to college and you have to learn how to do basic research there. Um, but I didn't enjoy it that much in college. But what I started to really enjoy is um, I, I just had a curiosity about um theoretical physics. And so I started researching it more and more because it intersects with philosophy in super interesting ways. And it asks really existential questions like whether you are experiencing reality or not. Um, and, you know, what is your body then if it can't experience reality at a high fidelity level? What it, What is the use of your body? You know, Things that are really philosophical um, and existential, um, this is what theoretical physics leads you to start thinking about and asking. And so this was just a really new area for me. So I had to research it because, you know, I, that's the only way I could learn about it. Um, and then I just found that it was kind of fun to research new things deeply. So then when I wanted to make a pivot into working in AI, um, I started asking super fundamental questions. And to me, the fundamental nature of AI is in the math. So I thought, okay, well, I need to understand the math then. And the more I studied it, the more interested I got about how it was working. Um, mostly because um, when you study the math of it, it does expose how different it is to human consciousness. Yeah. And I think that's you and I have talked about this before, and and of course, there's the people out there who believe that there is consciousness to AI, and uh, it's not something that I believe will ever happen. But I'm also willing to be wrong. I'm willing to 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 learn a different sure. eventuality. But I think it is interesting in the ways that I've seen you describe how math can mimic and lead someone who doesn't understand the math to believe there is consciousness, which is part of, for me, why I keep endeavoring to learn a little bit more about the math, because that helps me to understand the difference between what could mask as consciousness and what actually would be consciousness. Yeah. Um, Whenever I see someone who's seriously studying the math of it say that they see signs of emergent consciousness or cognition, that really intrigues me. Um, and I, you know, bookmark it to read later um, because it is so against what I currently understand. Now, what I currently understand is a tiny, tiny little slice. Um, I've only been studying this seriously since August of 2023. 
there have been people that have been studying it for you know twenty years. So, um, but I've been studying it pretty hard, um, and I don't. It's not the general opinion that there is emergent consciousness. That's a minority opinion. Um, but when I see it, and I see it from someone who's seriously studying the field and has worked in the field for years, it does interest me. It's kind of like if a physicist um, said something like, uh, you know, black holes are actually a form of consciousness. Like that would be super unusual and very interesting. It's funny because you're reminding me of, of a prompt that I often use, which is sorting through large data sets. And I often say, tell me what you found that's unusual. So it's almost as though you're mm. looking to the mathematicians that are thinking unusual thoughts, uh, not necessarily to believe them, but to provoke a new way of thinking that you might not have come across yeah. in other reality, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think when you do a pivot, I mean, you're kind of obligated to do some research because you're going into a new field. Um, and so that's actually one of the most enjoyable parts of doing this pivot for me is the the need and the, the justification to do a ton of research. I want to come back to my question about advice, but first, that last comment about enjoying the research, how do you know when you've pivoted? When, <laughs> If I imagine, I always think of it as sticking the landing. And, and so I was right. a gymnast. Uh, you, you were a boxer. I was a gymnast. And in yeah. gymnastics, you either stick the landing or you don't. And there's a real solid knowing that I've landed. Mm. Do you think there's such a thing in a career pivot or specifically in your career pivot? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to get feedback that, you know, uh, positively says you have stuck the landing. Um, I think there are just, what I try to focus on is making sure that the help I'm providing is, is useful and has concrete impact on people. Um, and, I expect it to be smaller and less helpful as I start out and then bigger and more helpful as I get more and more experience. So as long as that curve is happening where I'm actually getting better, I'm not going to ask, you know, is there evidence that I've stuck the landing? Because I don't know where to even look for that. I mean, if there was some sort of universal test like the SATs or something like that to test my AI knowledge, I'd take it, you know. there oh, is that's funny. Because I'm the opposite. I I despise universal tests and I yeah. I'm the one who takes it and says that tells tells you nothing about me well, other than sure. yeah, today I mean, what I was able to recall or today what yeah. I was able to figure out. Yeah, I mean the um the last standardized test I took was the what's the one for MBAs? The um the, is it the M? No, it's not M. I was going to anyway, say the MCAT is medical, the LSAT yeah, as legal. I don't legal. know. I didn't know there was one for a I took MBA. it in 96. Um, it was a long time ago. Uh, and I think, what, what did I get? Like 96th percentile, right? But yeah. there were other people taking the same test um, who I knew were better MBA. Well, actually, I don't know anything, but I strongly believe that these people were much better MBA candidates than me who scored significantly lower. So my conclusion was, okay, well, that test is of very limited use because 
I mean, it basically tests how well you can remember kind of eighth to ninth grade algebra and geometry. Um, I don't know how that really <laughs> helps you do an MBA, frankly. Well, and that's the thing about those tests. My daughter, her strength in life is taking those tests. So the when GMAT. she did... It's called the, the GMAT, by the way. Yeah, I just... Oh, the GMAT. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we would have had somebody in the show notes telling us what it was. Yeah. My daughter, her special skill is taking those tests well. And so she, in the LSAT, tested in the 99th percentile and she just took, again, I don't remember what it's called, but whatever the one for a PhD would be. Yeah. Is that also the GMAT maybe? And she tested in the 99.9th percentile only for the English portion and something like the 50th percentile for the math. And so you see how, again, they, they tell you a data point. Yeah, um, right. But they don't necessarily, again, I always say the data is weighed on the norms. And for someone right. who considers myself, I sit at the edges of normal. <laughs> I'm not very normal at all. Uh, and so I don't think they test me very accurately. In fact, I I would imagine the data that you would get from one of those tests for me wouldn't tell you anything about me, really. Yeah, I think they test whether you can do tests. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know how to know if I've stuck a landing um, for this pivot, but I do want to just see growth in the impact that I have when I advise clients on how to productively use AI in their businesses. I think, Eric, honestly, that having clients who ask your advice is part of sticking the landing because there's a lot of people doing the research and having curiosity, but maybe not brave enough to mm. put themselves out there. And so I would say, first of all, one of the first signs that I would see is just that anybody's asking your advice because nobody's I, asking a lot of people's <laughs> advice so they're coming yeah. to you. And then if you feel like you're providing them value, that would also be sticking the landing. Yeah, and I think realistically, they're not coming to me yet. They're coming to Dr. Lisa AI. Yes. Because they know that Lisa is a very credible person in the field, and I'm Lisa's helper, essentially. Um, at some point, they I might have enough of a, profile and enough credibility and work record that people might say, oh, I actually specifically want your advice, Eric. But right now, no, that's not really happening. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. I'm The first phase of this pivot for me is just to learn. And so um, as long as I'm learning, I'm achieving what I want to do for now. And being Lisa's helper on her projects is a really good way of learning. That's such a generous way of thinking about the, the work that you're doing, because a lot of people are so attached, especially in this day of influencers, to mm. being the face. Um, uh, and so I yeah. love that you have no need or desire to be no. that, and you can still feel successful about the work you're doing and, and the growth you're having without having to be the front man. True. I do not want to be the front man. Yeah. I think yeah. that's something else for people considering a pivot. So I know that that's our true. audience. That's a really good point. Because if you are a sole proprietor, you have to be the front person. Yeah. Um, I have the luxury that I don't have to be the front person. There is already a front person and she does it really well. So um, I can stay behind the curtain. 
Yeah, um, it's something to ask ask yourself about yourself. Mm. Am I okay either being behind the curtain or being a backup dancer, or do I really yeah. want to be the main event? And and that can inform where you're pivoting to. Very much, very much. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so if I can go back to the third thing, we've kind of talked about research, we've talked about math. Going back to your advice theme, mm. I know that you've got a really clear niche that you've defined really well around helping sales and marketing. Yep. To would you say add IA to their tech stack or choose a? Did I say IA? Yeah. Uh, we, yeah. We I'm in the backwards it. time continuum. Yeah. That thing. Yeah, that stuff. That that, um, that machine thing that, ha- yeah. that may or may not have consciousness that kind of looks like Jarvis but doesn't really. Own. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the organizations that come to us will be looking to add AI yeah. because they've specifically come to the belief that they need to add more AI. Now, in some cases, that's true. They they probably should add more AI to solve the problems that they seek to solve, which they haven't been able to solve yet. In other cases, it might be true that they don't need to add more AI. They might even own the AI that they need and have just not turned it on yet. <laughs> So an example of that would be... Yeah, I was just going to say, I need an example because I would love to hear a concrete. Sure. So there's a really popular um, product called Gong, and it actually has a lot of clever AI in it. But like most pieces of software, you can turn bits of it on and off. And so you can turn bits of Gong off, which makes it easier to use, but you're you're also turning off some of the AI. Right. So it's possible that a client might come to us and say, we want to use AI to understand if, you know, we're using the right messaging in the middle stages of a sales cycle. And if they have Gong, then they probably have the tool that they need for that right now. And if they then say, well, but that's not happening, we're not getting any insights into whether we're saying the right or the wrong things in the middle of the sales cycle. We would go straight to Gong and have a look at how they've configured it. And probably advise them, you know, just do this with Gong rather than, oh, yeah, turn Gong off and get this new thing. No need for a new thing. They probably can use what they have. So this is an example of how a company could own a product with exactly the AI that solves the problem, but they just haven't turned it on or turned on the parts of it that they need to turn on. That makes a ton of sense. So what I was also wondering about, going back to the math, um, when you go to these clients or the clients come to you Mm. and you've gleaned all of this knowledge about the underneath working. And I I think of this a lot, like I know how to use my iPhone, but I don't know how my iPhone does the things it does. Do you find that the people coming to you want to know how to use their iPhone or they want to know how the iPhone works? They just want to know how to use it. They don't care about the math. I couldn't kill it. I have not had one client ask me about the math of anything that Gong does or anything that Einstein does. This is just stuff that I like to know. Ah, okay. So it's not because I didn't research it because I thought, oh, someone's going to ask me. I better have the question, you know, answered. No, no one ever asked me this stuff, but I like to know it. That's where that natural curiosity serves mm. and allows you to be relieved and excited. Because you're yeah. getting to do what interests you, even if it doesn't play out exactly. It's it's kind of like understanding the bigger picture, right? That you only yeah. need to give them one slice of pie, but you need to have the whole pie. 
Yeah, and for me, it does make me a more comfortable and um, confident advisor. And that may not be logical, right? Like I know that a lot of coaches might say, you should be able to get comfortable as an advisor without knowing that level of detail. And that might be logically true, but it's just the way my brain works. I like knowing this stuff. So I know that no one's ever going to ask me like, well, you know, what's the difference between a Pearson and a Spearman correlation? And, you know, why doesn't the Einstein prediction builder use both? I mean, I can answer that, but no one's ever going to ask me, but I like to know why. So I'm not going to ask you on the podcast (laughs) because I'll just nod and smile, nod and smile. I'm glad, you know, and, and, listeners if you want to know we'll ask eric next week but yeah you can message me i'll tell you but i mean you know yeah um but yeah we don't have clients coming to us saying like please explain this they're coming to us saying we believe that ai can probably help us solve this problem is this true if it's true help us get there you know yeah i had a conversation with someone that we both know tova from Fathom AI Mm. this week, and I was fascinated. So she used to own a company called Avalanche Insights that was, to to make it as simple as possible, looking at poll data from US elections and looking very granularly, kind of like your middle sales thing, the words that work to turn Mm. someone from a, I don't know who I'm voting for, to voting for the specific candidate who had hired her. And I was fascinated when I heard and saw the data that showed how successful the company was at this because of that AI piece. And so I guess where I'm going with this is when you're working with sales and marketing teams, and you and I talked about this back in the ideal client question a few episodes ago, do you ever think, "Mm, I don't know that I want this much control over who buys or who doesn't like when does it feel like too much power and and you're giving someone something Um, that or does it i it just really got me thinking yeah i don't think i've run into a situation yet and bear in mind i mean i'm pretty new to this business but i I haven't run into a situation yet where i feel like oh they've just delegated too much control to us and now we're in control of levers that only they should be pulling what we would do if someone did do that, we would actually encourage them to like, come over to the control board and put your hands on these levers. These are for you to push and pull, not us. Yeah, We'll tell you what happens. When you pull that lever, we'll tell you what happens at the other end of the machine, but we are not pulling this lever for you. Only you do that because this is your business. So that would be our attitude. If we did feel like someone was starting to delegate something to us that we felt like this is not something we should have control of, yeah, it just becomes, to me, again, going to the everybody needs a philosopher on the team, coming back to that thought process of, yeah, okay, I can use AI to actually change the language that's making me more compelling, which is tipping people to my point of view, but who says mine uh, is right? And I think that's okay. where I'm really going with that, Eric, yeah. I, so, on a philosophical level, have been playing right. with this more and more. Right. So there's a service that we offer where we help a client construct a governance framework for their use of AI. 
But what we're doing there is we're helping construct a framework. We are not prescribing an ethical point of view. Mm. So we are not saying, for example, that it is good or bad to, for example, uh, let's say, replace all your SDRs with AI. SDRs are basically junior salespeople that usually they're involved at the very front of a sales cycle. They call people who might have hit your website and downloaded a white paper. And then you ask the SDR, hey, call that person, ask them what they thought of the white paper, get into a conversation with them. So they're SDRs, right? And, And there's this sort of mini trend going on where a lot of people are saying, hey, can't we just do that with AI? Yeah. Right. So there are there are real ethical questions to consider there. And we don't say it's ethical or it's unethical, but we can help a client construct a framework for thinking through that and thinking through the governance of AI. Some of the questions that we would encourage people to ask themselves as a business is, let's say that you have 20 SDRs and you decide, I'm going to replace them all with AI. No more SDRs. Come Monday, it's all AI. What are the account executives going to think about that? So the account executives are usually the more senior people that work with the SDRs and they're usually paired together and they work closer together and they have relationships. So you fired all your SDRs and you replaced them with some AI. What is the experience that the account executives have and what beliefs does that lead to are they beliefs you want them to have about the company and their work or not so we would encourage people to look much more widely than just the technological impact of what they're doing Um, and it's difficult for us to adopt a specific ethical position because the ethics of an action related to AI are so dependent on the context. Um, in some cases, it could be a very sensible thing to replace some SDRs, and in some other cases, it could be a horrible decision. Um, and we don't really know how to construct a, a recipe book that says, always do it this way. Um, what we prefer to do is tell people. First of all, governance frameworks are good things to have. If you are going to start using AI widely, a governance framework with concepts and rules about what works and what doesn't in your organization, that's a good thing to have. We'll help you build one of those. We're not going to be an ethicist and say, for your company, here's the correct ethical position. That's a smart position to hold. I'm always, it's akin to giving a man a fish versus teaching him to fish. Yeah. And I'm always a fan of the latter. Yeah. Um, Yes, there's that element of it, which is where you make them more independent. Um, But I also think that business owners and business leaders hold the accountability for how their business behaves. Um, So even if you pay McKinsey $20 million to advise you on how to lead your business, you don't really get rid of the accountability. It's still yours if you are the leader. Absolutely. I certainly wish more leaders believed that, though, because they sure want to blame McKinsey when something goes wrong, don't they? That's that's why they pay McKinsey so much money, so that they can say, (laughs) well, I paid $20 million to these super smart people, and they told me to do it, so I just did it. Yeah. And I think... One of the things that I see is so if I if I think of a marketing right, I always think of okay Pepsi versus Coke, the the biggest marketing 
back and forth that you've ever seen. And when I start to go down the philosophy road and think, okay, well, if, if Coke can find all the words that makes everybody choose Coke and mm. then Pepsi can also hire a better team. And it's, it's a back and a forth, just yeah. like anything, right. That there's, yeah. there's going to be correction and overcorrection and yeah. uh, trends that, that shift. So when my, and I think I'm saying this because I hear so many people really fearful of AI and you and I've had this conversation before around it's, it's what you make believe in your head. It's, it's neither good nor bad. It's yeah, we don't know. Yeah. Right. But when I have people who are deeply fear-based in their beliefs and their resistance, that's where I say, you know, yeah, I hear you getting all worked up around. This is going to change the election, but don't you think both sides are using it? There's not only one side that has this tool and, and, just keep that in mind that it's very easy to start to think of us versus them and the things that I want, Oh, they're not safe because they have AI and they're going to use it against me. But ours is also using against them. It's a, yeah. it's a give and take. It's a back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. True. And, and the philosophy of that to me, looks like this, which is that every time we discover a new tool, um, we own the moral responsibility for deciding how it's used. So when we learned how to make bronze, for example, it was our choice whether to make art out of it, tools, or weapons. I mean, it certainly supercharged, you know, battle. Um, you know, bronze swords were a lot more effective at killing people and injuring people than, uh, you know, wooden spears. So... That, does that make bronze evil? I'm not sure it does. I mean, I think the the ethics of it are in our choices as people. So I think AI is like that too. I mean, certainly it can be used really destructively and uh, with a lot of malicious intent, um, but it could also help discover a better medical device or a better drug or a better material that's more environmentally friendly. I saw, and this kind of brings me, we often talk about the cool things that we've seen in the AI world. I saw a report that someone had programmed a an AI and it had discovered that all thumbprints are not individual. Yeah. That in fact, it right. found two that were the same. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, and by the way, that was not a large language model. Okay. That's, what was that? That's the other thing. So that's. Um, something called a deep contrastive network. Mm. And um, it's, I think the lesson there that I think is really good to take away is first of all, not all AI is like chat GPT. So there's lots of other types of AI running behind the curtain, not getting as much attention, but doing really important work. Like for example, finding out that not all fingerprints are unique in the way that we believed them to be unique. Um, So I think that, AI applied correctly can help our understanding of, of what's true in our environment um, and it can help remove illusions and misunderstandings that we have. Which is perfect because everybody's talking about how it makes hallucinations, but it can also remove illusions. Well, yeah. I mean, the LL- yin and the yang. And, yeah. And the hallucinations in particular, uh, they're particular to large language models. 
Yes. And I'm not saying that all other AI is perfect and never makes mistakes. I mean, there's mistakes that you can make in every type of AI or, uh, you know, misunderstandings that you can get from every type of AI. But the, the hallucination thing that everyone's really aware of right now, that's specifically with large language models. That is very good to spotlight for our audience because as we get better at recognizing AI is not the same as LLM. And we have to also remember the things that we attribute good and bad to one may have nothing to do with the other. Right, right. There's a lot of AI that is not large language models. And actually most most AI. AI, Most AI is not large language models. And most AI isn't getting the press, right? That the So give me a couple of examples of, of sure. just so that our audience can understand yeah. what are other things that AI is doing that aren't being yep. talked about in the same way that generative AI or LLMs. Sure. So every time you use your credit card, your credit card company is using AI to figure out whether that's you or not. And what they're doing is they're looking at the types of things you buy and when you buy them and where you buy them. And if something turns up that's super strange, they're using a a particular type of machine learning called classification and clustering to say, wait a minute, that person never shops there. Or that's that's not even a country that we've ever seen them in. Or that's not something that they would buy on Saturday afternoon. And then they'll text you and they'll say, hey, was this you? Yeah. And if you don't tell them, yeah, that was me, then they might shut your credit card off until you get in touch with them. That's AI that has nothing to do with large language models, but that's been in use for ages. And we're comfortable and familiar with it and we like Mm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, when Amazon, um, I mean, when you use Amazon, almost every page that you see is rendered specifically for you based on your previous usage of Amazon. And that's AI doing that too. Is that the same, Eric? I think it is with Netflix, how I'm always yes. fascinated that yes. my husband's movie cover of the same movie, his always yeah. looks like action, adventure, sci-fi. Uh, yep. Mine always looks like rom-com, <laughs> no yeah. matter what movie. That's also AI, and that also has nothing to do with large language models. Yeah. I love I love being educated on this. I had one more question, and I've just got a let me pause and think because something came to me in the midst of that. And then I got distracted by my own thought of Netflix. <laughs> Netflix is a good time. one. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I always think if I could use my words, the way that Netflix uses their imagery, man, I would be compelling. Uh, it's, it's <laughs> something I aspire to. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask you. So I've kind of, gone over okay this is what i heard the thumbprints and then these are things that i'm curious about what were you excited about that came out in the last week or so well um i'm intrigued by tracking the case um between open ai and the new york times and just the statements that they're making in the early parts of the case so one of the things that open ai said was it is quote unquote impossible to build their type of solution without accessing copyrighted content. And I thought that's a really interesting position to take. I don't believe anything is 
technically impossible in their world. It it can be very, very, very expensive, um, but that just makes it economically undesirable, not technically impossible. So I think a truer statement might have been, we don't want to have to build our stuff without copyrighted content because it would be massively expensive and way slower for us to build anything useful. Um, I suppose if you go to a client-centered way of saying that, the client wants that data in yeah. the model and they yeah. want it more quickly. So right. <laughs> they're, they're doing it to build what their audience is asking them for. Yep. Right. Exactly. The, the copyrighted content has some information that people want accessed when they use ChatGPT. So if the copyright holders say, nope, sorry, no access for you, then either the model isn't going to know the information or they're going to have to go get the information from somewhere else, from a non-copyrighted source. That's possible. You can do it. It's just really, really expensive and slow. Yeah. It's funny because when I've watched, I think any social media platform has a ton of people who just like to come on and argue. And I don't think I've seen as many people on LinkedIn really wanting, showing up in an aggressive nature to talk about a case. Um, and I know that's my algorithm on LinkedIn showing me sure. what I've been curious about, but I saw a lot of people really trying to explain something that didn't seem like they understood. So trying to mm. say, this is like Google, that Google uses other people's things to recommend to you yeah. um, or social media where you the user become what they're selling and and just i think people have gotten very confused uh, number one because they don't understand how yeah. how the gpt has been trained mm -hmm. and right. number two because they're comparing apples to pears and yeah they're similar but they're not exactly the same right yeah yeah i think that's a good summary of it um yeah i mean that it may not be the most exciting thing, but I think it's a really it's going to be a really landmark case. It's going to drive a lot of standards of what's acceptable and what's not. Um, what uh, Dr. Lisa pointed out is, you know, there is probably a sensible middle ground where you compensate the people who have done the work. In this case, the New York Times. Yeah. Um, they probably deserve some compensation for all the journalism that they did and that is now being used commercially by OpenAI. Uh, and there's probably a price that makes sense both ways where OpenAI can afford the price and the New York Times is happy with what they're being paid and then people go forward on that basis. And there's even, you know, some rough approximate precedents for it in other countries where, um, Social networks like Facebook, for example, have had to pay uh, media companies for access to their original journalism. Yes, Canada was one of those that we yeah. shut off all Facebook news and there was such pushback when people could no longer communicate about uh, disasters. And, mm. and so you see, okay, we thought we were doing a good thing and actually it became a bad thing. It's These aren't just simple if X, then Y solutions, are they? Right, right. And I think that if we can, if we could take all of the ego out of the discussions, it might be better. 
Because what happens, I think, is that the CEOs of these companies sometimes have pretty big egos and they just don't want to back down. So they've been out in public saying, I shouldn't have to pay for this. And so for them to go back on that and say, all right, I probably should pay a little bit. It's not so much the money, it's the ego blow of having to reverse a public position. I really believe that some of that drives what we see in these arguments. Yeah, I would agree with you on that, absolutely. Because remember, we're also talking about... I have about... one final question. Oh, sure, yeah. I was going to no, say... Go ahead, also... go ahead. We're talking about guys in their 30s and 40s. <laughs> Having been a guy in my 30s and 40s, I can tell you this is a very egotistical slice of human population we're talking about. These are people... I've been fortunate to know some founders of some pretty large tech companies and the things you have to do to do that successfully. uh, You you sit in a different place than I I think you're right that there's a state that egoically a lot of guys at a certain age go through, but these are people who operated outside in the very edgy. They were doubling down on things early in their career. They, they bravely try that the things it takes to become that level of a leader um, are also the things that make it really hard for you to say you were wrong, at yeah. least in your head. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. Yeah. All right. The last thing I wanted to ask you about, I have seen such an emergence of people making what they call their own GPTs. Yeah. Everybody has, yeah. this is, this is my bedtime story creator. This is my talk to Martin Seligman. This is my, and the, this is one of those things where I, I think I like to be an original. If you see my zoom screensaver, it's a picture of me with a shirt that says normal is boring. So the last thing I want is a GPT when everybody has a GPT. <laughs> and so I'm curious to know your take on first we had everybody was was making a chatbot. Now everybody's yep. making a GPT. Yep. Is there some use to these that I'm not understanding? Um, I think we're going to see some natural and healthy experimentation. I mean, this happened with the App Store too. The yep. difference is that with the App Store, you needed a certain set of technical skills to build an app. Whereas you don't need very many technical skills to build your own GPT now. So it's a it's been opened up to a broader audience. But you saw this with the App Store. I mean, there were some very, very silly apps that were made in the early days yes. of the App Store because developers were like, oh, so I can make an app that is just like a barking dog. You know, I mean, there were worse ones than that too. Um, so I think you'll see some of that where there's going to be a flood of people simply just playing and experimenting and thinking, you know, wow, what if I did this? Um, And a lot of them won't be that useful um, or won't be that in demand. Uh, But the, the process of playing and experimenting will probably create some very good ideas that will turn into useful products. I like that. That's an optimist's way to think of it. And so do you have a GPT? Have you played with making one? Yeah, I, I made three, but they were specifically, I mean, I'm not trying to sell them, right? I was really showing other people, you know, this is what you could do 
and I, I wasn't even pretending that the one that I made is like, you should just use that now. I was basically using it as an example saying, look, if I can make this, imagine what you could do for this problem that you have if you did something similar. So that was the purpose of making them. So one of them, for example, was, um, you know, we I, I co-made it basically with someone who was a, uh, in a product uh, design group, a team. And so I showed him how if we trained it on a bunch of product documentation, it would start to be fairly useful as a question answer about the products. Like we could ask it pretty specific questions about the products and it would get it right. That's a so, great use case. Yeah. So, you know, imagine if he brings on two new people onto the product team and um, he's not always there to answer their questions. Well, this GPT yeah. is. Sounds great for uh, teams that are global. To, yeah. That there's an answer always available to you, even when the guy you report to is asleep or the girl right. who's supposed to answer your question is on holidays. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And we will be making one at Dr. Lisa AI. We will be making one um, that essentially is a, a facsimile or an, an avatar of Lisa um, answering a certain yeah. subset of questions that we think it's responsible to answer through um, a GPT. There are some things in AI consulting that we believe are too nuanced and too specific to clients to pretend that a GPT is a great way to communicate the answer. I think there's those, there's always the instances where there is a one size fits all answer. And I would imagine that's where a GPT does well. And then anything that requires context and nuance needs a human. Right. Right. Exactly. All right. Well, we've, we've gone on a big circular tour today. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we wrap up? I I'm curious to hear about your experience in the last session where you used um, an LLM to pose questions. How different was that to having uh, a smart person ask questions? That's a great question. And I think it wasn't that different except the energy of Mm. you and I back and forth. And so right now, Eric and I are recording on something called Riverside FM and we can see one another and it's not really clear today, which we're very pixelated. And so that even gives me a lesser experience than when I can fully see you and see your facial expression. And this kind of goes back to how I coach clients when they talk about meeting structure. And I always say, you know, in person, face to face where you can see and you're in the room together, always the best thing. Yeah. The next best thing is where you can physically see one another. So Zoom is better than a phone call. And a phone yeah. call where you can hear nuance is better than a text. And so my experience being asked really great questions that were in writing form without a voice back and forth, mm. without follow-up questions, yeah. was a good starting spot. And had I wanted to, I could have had a voice read them to me. And I find more and more that the voices sound like they have emotional nuance and so it wasn't a bad experience and it was better than talking to myself (laughs) because I I was sharing to you before that I don't understand how Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss can talk for hours two hours sometimes three hours all by themselves I couldn't listen to myself that long so yeah it it gave me a little bit of a sense that I wasn't listening to myself I think that 
experience that you had is going to be representative of human experience with AI for probably the next two years, which is, it's better than nothing, but it's not the same as interaction with another person. You are so right. And I think that's a perfect place to leave this episode. And maybe it's where we can pick up next time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That well, sounds thank good. you again for, for letting us witness your journey and, and ask you questions and learn from it. Uh, I am so grateful that our audience is, is showing up, whether they are in a pivot or considering a pivot. Until next time, I encourage everyone to just keep charting your course. Stay curious. Be open-minded, be brave, and just know that what's next is inevitable. So enjoying it is all up to you. And we started this with Eric saying he was relieved and excited. That's what I wish for everybody.